Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Talknosis After Dark. We are discussing the secret mark with Dr. Tony Burke. Dr. Tony Burke teaches biblical studies at the Department of Humanities, York University, Toronto, Ontario, Canada. He's the editor and contributor to the Ancient Gospel or Modern Forgery, The Secret Gospel of Mark and Debate, as well as the author and editor of The Secret Scriptures Revealed, a new introduction to the Christian Apocrypha. Welcome again, Dr. Burke. Hi, thanks for having me. Welcome. Thank you so much. And as typical, we are being joined by Bishop Peterson. Hello. Hello. And by Father Tony. Hello. Well, that was quite an interesting uh, video show we had. So I'm hoping that everyone listening to our podcast has had an opportunity to watch it before giving this a listen. Uh, but for those who haven't, Bishop Peterson, did you want to give them a, uh, a quick little rundown of the secret gospel of Mark? Certainly. Uh, as we discussed during the show, the, the secret, uh, secret Mark or the secret gospel of Mark um, is, a, is a very short excerpt, actually, that was cited in a letter written by uh, somebody identified as Clement of Alexandria. And mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a very, very brief passage, and I, I won't reread it here, but it's, uh, it's, a, it's a passage in which uh, Jesus meets a, uh, meets a woman whose, whose brother... Um, has died. Uh, Jesus rolls away the stone from the man from the boy's tomb. The youth in, in there raises is raised from the dead and, and loves Jesus. And uh, they do have a, a meeting in an evening um, in which he teaches the, the youth many of the mysteries of the kingdom of God. And this has been an incredibly uh, this discovery of this text. And the text itself is proven to be incredibly controversial. And Dr. Burke and the previous show did help us out a lot by kind of sorting out some of the reasons for the controversy. And uh, he also gave his views on the authenticity of this passage. So, as always, Father Tony usually has some great questions uh, that he comes up with during the video show. So, Father mm-hmm. Tony, do you have anything for Dr. Burke? Well, I have an observation. Um, the... And you brought up the uh, the Gospel of Jesus's wife fragment um, that was a, a big deal. Uh, what about a year ago? Mm-hmm. And uh, it, 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 back then, when that controversy was happening, it, it occurs to me that it's kind of the same thing. It, these texts don't necessarily, and I, uh, well, these texts don't necessarily say anything about Jesus, about the actual Jesus, if such a person exists, which well, I think we'll talk about next week. <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, all they say is this is what somebody thought about Jesus and what somebody wrote down. And so I, I don't often get the instant and, you know, gut reaction that some people have that, Oh, you know, this is, this is the worst thing ever. And this, you know, you hear people saying, well, if this doesn't shake somebody's faith, then I don't know what will. And uh, it doesn't, People take it a lot more seriously, I think, because it's about Jesus <laughs> than mm-hmm. if it were just like, you know, hey, here's some uh, here's some story we found that we didn't know before about some, you know, quote unquote mythical figure. Mm-hmm. Now you you mentioned that you were interested in this stuff, you know, kind of because of that kind of cultural, mm-hmm. uh, the cultural interest surrounding it. What do you find most fascinating about? the Apocrypha in general, and and how do you see it all fitting into the spectrum of what we have come to call Holy Scripture? Uh, a lot to ask there. Um, <laughs> um, just to comment on the first part about, about the reaction to it, um, my wife is a journalist, and what she says about this kind of thing is that uh, you know, scholars come out with these discoveries or these ideas, but the media wants to shape it into a story that people are interested in, that, that will, in a sense, affect them. So when the Gospel of Judas, for example, when that discovery was publicized, um, the you would see the people on television asking the question of, or does this mean Judas was, was not a bad guy? And then the scholars would have to say, well, we don't know anything about Judas in in as a historical figure, we just know what this text yeah. says about him. So we're often doing that kind of caution and then bringing it back to what we think is important. And what I was mentioning in the 
the video portion, that it tells us something about Christians in particular places and their their own particular viewpoints. Um, now I have to get back to what your other part of the question was. Apographer in general. Well, let's, uh, let me talk about um, um, the other ways that Apographer get received. Um, so that I mentioned my interest in Secret Mark because uh, is that I'm interested in how um, scholars receive the text and what they do with it. And I, I published this article several years ago about um, the interest spawned by um, the, the Da Vinci Code and the discovery of the Gospel of Judas and a few other things. And we uh, there's this kind of cottage industry of books, mostly from conservative scholars, trying to address the fact that people are very interested in Christian apocrypha all of a sudden, but trying to pull their pull the attention of their constituents, conservative Christians, away from these these texts. So they would write uh, these books saying how the texts are awful, they're not historical, they have nothing to say about Jesus, the people who study them are terrible people. Well, some of them said that. Um, they were being misled by the powers of darkness. And these are scholars. They feel yeah. theologians and scholars, but they're scholars. And so uh, I was very interested in the... the the dynamic going, uh, that was going on in their uh, writings, because they're doing something very much what the early church was doing. Um, Irenaeus in the late second century wrote this sweeping um, text called Against the Heresies, mm -hmm. um, trying to show how they have these terrible ideas and that Christian, normative Orthodox Christians should keep away from them. It's exactly what the modern theologians were doing. Mm -hmm. um, and using the same techniques, but they don't. I don't think they even realized they were doing it. Um, so that's the kind of thing I'm interested in. Well, part of one of the things I'm interested in with Christian apocrypha, but I also just like the the texts themselves. They're just so interesting, often so strange. Um, <laughs> and uh, though I think the Bible texts are very strange too. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. Walking across water is not a normal thing. Um, turning water into wine, not a normal thing. But we're used to those stories, right? I wish it was. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but so maybe maybe we missed it. Maybe we're not old enough. But w why is this and the Jesus wife fragment and and other? Well, I suppose this was in the fifties, though, huh? But so wh why is this uh, such a controversial thing? And say the the Nag Hammadi library, uh, oh. you don't you don't hear people getting nearly as riled up about you know the Gospel of Philip, for example. I mean, even though. Right. It appears in the Da Vinci Code as definitive proof that uh, <laughs> that the Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married, but people kind of just fluff that off and say, "Yeah, you know those wacky Gnostics." Right. Well, I think with the Nagamati Library, we know exactly where. Well, I shouldn't say exactly, but because um, there's actually a lot of debate now about about where this material came from. But we we generally believe the story that it was found by this. Um, 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 Arab peasant, uh, he sold it to middlemen, and the middlemen then passed it on to uh, uh, to the museums and scholarship as we have it now. We, we have a clear sense of where these texts came from, and we have the texts themselves, the, the, the codices. With Secret Mark, the text went missing, mm -hmm. so we can't uh, test it. We can't do carbon dating on it. We can't test the ink and so on, and, and, and know for sure that it is a text from, well, at least the 18th century rather than something that Morton Smith invented in the 20th century. So there's that kind of mystique around this text where, but it encourages dismissal of the text, right? Uh, I'm not going to bother with it because I don't know if it's genuine. Whereas the Nagamati texts, we know they're genuine and therefore we, we, we then work with them and try to understand them. Um, there isn't that much kind of uh, patience and will with the secret gospel of Mark. And you can understand why. If, if I, uh, if I was going to write a book about the secret gospel of Mark and how it, sh how, how it reveals all of these things about early Christianity, and then the next day someone proves it's fake, well, I, I don't look very, uh, very good, do I? It's an embarrassment. So people resist working with it for that reason. And one of the reasons why Mark Smith didn't use it for his Jesus the Magician book as well, because he didn't want that to be pulled out from underneath the book. He wanted to prove his point without using that text. And I think it was a very smart move. 
Do you think, is it, is it, you know, one of the things that I did notice when I was doing some preparation for the show is that people seem to be attacking Morton Smith personally. And, and you mentioned that some of the evangelical or conservative scholars that have been attacking the apocryphal books have gotten personal in their, in, in their critiques by, by saying the people who study them is something wrong with them. Is that a, is that a common tactic you're finding? Um, it's not... It's not that common. There's only there's a couple of people that I, that I think I, I talked about in the article that do that. One of them is, is a guy named Ben Witherington. And if you watch CNN's Finding Jesus documentary, he's on okay. there quite a bit. Very conservative. Um, but he does say that, um, that apocryphal scholars are being led by powers of darkness. So it's, it's a bit over the top, obviously. But you don't get a lot of that rhetoric from other people. Mostly they just say... The texts are bad. They don't say the scholars are bad. He goes one step further, okay. uh, and it's unfortunate that he would that he would take that tactic for sure. Um, because I know a lot of Christian apocryphal scholars, and they're pretty decent people. Um, <laughs> yes. I don't, I don't, uh, I don't sacrifice babies in my spare time or anything like that. I'm quite reasonable. Yeah, those kinds of things. You know, you have to really commit, and you know, you just can't do that as a hobbyist. You know, no, no. So, um, about the actual uh, the actual document itself, he it was it wasn't like part of a a book, right? It was it was uh, part of the end papers or something, or it was yes. stuck in a corner. Um, a lot of interesting things are found in the end papers of other documents. Why why do you think this one was used in that way? Did somebody? Because it was legible, did somebody think it was important, but not important enough? And I know you're, you'd be speculating, but mm-hmm. you know, not important enough to actually bind into the book, but or not long enough. I don't know. Why do things get <laughs> get stuck on the ends like that? The assumption is that, that someone at the Marsaba Monastery in the 18th century uh, had this fragmentary copy of this letter because it's not complete. It end, it, it it ends mid way through it or somewhere somewhere through it and it actually ends right where clement is supposed to say what the secret meaning of this text is um terrible time terrible place to end it um and maybe it was it was kind of wasting away and uh the, the person probably a monk decided to, to make a fresh copy of it and with uh paper was scarce so he used the end papers of a book and it is a fairly common thing to do um people who criticize the text who try to claim it's inauthentic some of those, I couldn't can't say all of them are like this, but some of them don't know a lot about manuscript um, transmission and production. And they look at that and say, that's what a peculiar thing to do. But it's not peculiar. It gets done quite a lot. Um, so they often uh, bring in, look at these these uh, strange things. Well, no, they're not that strange. These, these aspects of manuscript transmission and manuscript cataloging that Smith did, and they try to find odd things in it and say, that's weird. But if they know more about um, transmission of text and how people catalog text and so on, it, they would see that it's actually quite normal. It's normal to write things in the back of books. It's normal for Smith, for example, to read this text, copy it, make photographs of it, and then put it back where he found it. Uh, it's not his fault that someone lost it, um, but they see something suspicious in those activities. But it's quite normal. That's what you do. You don't just walk out the monastery door with a script. <laughs> with a book um, under your arm. Yeah. Um, I'm just so, going to take this and cut it up and perform tests on it. Yeah. I hope you don't mind. Yeah. So he did everything that he should do. And, and so sometimes those criticisms or, or, or suspicions about what he did are really ill-founded. I want to ask about uh, the one theory that I've heard. There is this... Um, obscure thriller novel from the 1940s right. that somebody was trying to con- yes, yeah, connect that, say that Martin, Martin Smith, you know, uh, got his ideas from that. Can you comment on that? Um, I'll try to remember the details. Um, so the book is called The Mystery of Marsaba, and it's one of numerous um, novels which, uh, as part of the plot, uh, a text is found in an obscure place that redefines Christianity. There's lots mm-hmm. of these stories. Um, the fact that Morton Smith also found a manuscript in the same library um, is not that st- significant statistically. You know, it's, it's a funny coincidence. But one of the things that someone, uh, uh, in trying to, to, to flesh out that argument more, there's a character in the Marsaba, Mystery of Marsaba novel, 
whose name is Lord Morton. And so the scholar who's looking at this theory is saying, well, isn't that a coincidence? Well, wh what does he expect that Morton Smith's going to change his, it was originally not named Morton Smith, and then he changed his name to Morton Smith, and then uh, in order to, to make this connection with this book, it's just silly. Um, and other people, I, I mentioned Alan Pantuck, actually, in the, in the, the video portion. Um, he's looked at other literary coincidences um, over time, including there was a, there was a book about the sinking of a great big ship called the Titan mm. uh, in a novel. And then later on, the Titanic sank. Bizarre coincidence, but it doesn't mean anything, right? So, yes, coincidental elements, but the, like I said, there are so many of these, these books which which come out with claiming a, a new manuscript or the body of Jesus has been found or some other such thing, that it's not such a surprise that it, real life would replicate it. And in fact, actually, the novel is replicating real life at the same time, right? It, the, the, the novelist is, is talking about what other people have done. People find manuscripts in, in libraries and in strange places, and, and we get these new texts. So, so I, I wouldn't put much stock in that theory. That's very interesting because I, I guess I kind of assume that the, you know, finding a, a lost document that redefined Christianity, I kind of thought that was a, a more modern uh, phenomenon. But if, uh, if it's happening all the way back in the 40s. Yeah. Um, and even before that, um, there's a book by a scholar named, I think it's Robert Price, um, called, I think, Secret Scrolls, if I can remember. But he surveys about 40 of these novels. Mm -hmm. um, so it's interesting to see see how they pick up on... Um, various things going on in their time period, like, like say, the body of Jesus being found or the Da Vinci Code reflecting um, um, issues about Jesus being married. So they, they typically uh, pick up on something that's in the air of, of uh, Christianity at the time and write these into the books and, and then, and then uh, try to make a lot of money off them. <laughs> Sometimes successful. Right. I remember back when I was a, in high school, I read this book called The Word, I think it was called. I want to say it was like a 70s, 60s or 70s novel, but it was, you know, it was the standard formula that somebody finds this secret gospel allegedly on Mount Athos. Right. And, um, you know, that it changed everything, but later it was found to be a forgery and there was this whole big scandal because one guy figured out that it was a f that that the story wasn't true because the person who found it was a woman and women aren't allowed on Monathos and you know it it it, it was one of these pot boilers a lot of fun right. a lot of yeah. fun but yeah and that's one of the books that he mentions actually in the yeah. in, in his survey yeah the it's interesting um talking about documents that may or may not be uh forgeries one of the one of the important documents for for my church is uh, called the well it, among other things it's called the Leviticon um, and it contains a version of the Gospel of John uh, that has a few things left out of it it doesn't have the resurrection narrative for example and um, has a couple of other uh, sections that are missing um, and then a couple of interesting things are changed at key points and um, because I I like to, and be, because I don't have anybody telling me I can't, I like to say that it represents kind of a pre-redaction version of the Gospel of John, kind of an older version. Um, I did a presentation on it a few years back at Conclave, uh, you know, going through kind of the differences point by point and saying, you know, uh, the reasons why a lot of things were added or in my, my theory anyway, <laughs> were added to the Gospel of John to kind of explain things a little bit more. Um, because in the Leviticon, all the little parenthetical explanatory things don't appear. Um, hmm. uh, I'm trying to think of an example off the top of my head, but I can't think of one. Um, when Now, this, this was a document that was supposedly discovered in the early 1800s and is very little known. In fact, it was only translated into English a few years ago. Um, when, when a document is found like that or when a document kind of comes to the surface like that, uh, just for my own professional or non-professional, I guess, curiosity, what is the process by which you would examine a document like that and say, you know, I think that this would be authentic or I think that this is, you know, somebody made it up or somebody with an exacto knife went to town mm -hmm. on it? Um, as it happens, I'm, I'm, uh, I did a presentation at my university back in November on mod, what, I call, what I call modern apocrypha. So texts that have been found in the 
19th and 20th centuries. Um, um, the, the life of Christ is one of these. This is the story of Jesus going to India that uh, a Russian named Nicholas Nikolovich, I think his name is, uh, is said to have found. Um, the point of the, the presentation, and I will work it up for a paper later on, is I wanted to look at how scholars uh, received those texts and how they, um, uh, what kind of tests they, they, they did on the documents that, that made them feel believe that they were modern, and then apply that to Secret Mark and the Gospel of Jesus' Wife and see if they passed the same tests. Mm -hmm. And mostly these modern apocrypha don't have an original manuscript. Mm -hmm. So they are translations of a text into a modern language, but the manuscript has gone missing somewhere. So very, very few of these modern apocrypha um, have the publishers, the editors, been able to produce the original manuscript. And I think there's only one actually where someone did and it looked kind of fishy. Um, so you look at something like Secret Mark and there was a real manuscript. It's been photographed, but it went missing. And the Gospel of Jesus' Wife, we have a manuscript, but people think it's very fishy. Um, but mostly the modern apocrypha, there's no manuscript to test. Um, it's not in the original language, which is a problem. Um, and often they have some mistakes of history involved in there, some anachronisms or something like that. Um, and sometimes they just seem like they're just a bit too, uh, too good to be true. For example, one of these, I can't remember the name of it, but it presents Jesus as a supporter of vegetarianism, which is something very, people were very much interested in in the beginning of the 19th century. Uh, they are too now as well. But this particular editor wanted to present Jesus as supporting vegetarianism. So crafted this text where it shows Jesus doing that. One of the most interesting parts of the text is Jesus also um, is a supporter of, of cleansing um, um, enemas, basically. So it has Jesus <laughs> doing in the text. Uh, so a little strange. Um, uh, so anyway, so they tend not to f not to fit the time period that it's supposed to be from. There's no manuscript, there's no original language, and that's usually how people uh, go about this process. It's when we do have an original language that it gets trickier and uh, it gets harder to disprove it. But the thing is, um, it's always easy to come up with an explanation for something to declare it a forgery. With the Morton Smith secret mark text, we've had a couple of document examiners who have said, this is not something that Morton Smith could have done. He cannot write Greek like a native Greek writer. He cannot write in handwriting like an 18th century Greek uh, would. So, so people like me that prove Smith didn't do it. To critics, they say, well, he must have hired someone who could do that. So there's always another explanation, right? And mm -hmm. The conspiracy gets wider in order to account <laughs> for this new information. Even something like, say, the carbon dating of the Gospel of Jesus' wife. Well, we've dated the paper to, I think, the 8th century. Yeah, well, someone could have taken that from an 8th century manuscript. Uh, the ink seems to fit for the time period. Yeah, well, that can be duplicated. Well, you're gonna have, people are going to have an explanation for everything. Mm -hmm. um, and at some point, you've got to say, it looks pretty good. And I think that's where I've come to be with, with the, the secret mark. But I'm not quite there for the Gospel of Jesus' wife. Is that kind of, um, I guess you call it bias? Is that is that common? The bias against a text? Well, just you know, when when a scholar comes across something that is that goes against conventional wisdom, is right. is it? I suppose it's far more common for everybody to dismiss it out of hand before looking at it than actually saying, "Okay, let's think about this for a minute." I think among some scholars, you can, you do do that. You do see that. But I was, I've been looking at some the reception of some apocrypha centuries ago, and uh, a, a text called the Infancy Gospel of James, or the Protovangelium of James, which talks about the birth of Mary and her upbringing. When that was first published in, I think it was the 17th century, um, the person who published it was, was saying that this was the original gospel that Matthew and Luke took their information from. And then a few other theological ideas uh, related to it. And one of the leading scholars of the time declared it a forgery. Says this post can't possibly be authentic because he didn't like the theology that the editor was bringing with the text, which is the same thing, kind of thing we have with, with Morton Smith and the Secret Gospel of Mark. But you need to divorce yourself from from the commentary from the text, right? So, Infant's Gospel of James was proven authentic because we got more and more and more manuscripts of it. Um, 
what we need with Secret Mark is someone to discover another manuscript. Mm. And that would put to rest these, um, mm. these theories of it being a forgery. And there have been other, some other discoveries over time where people have, have made that same kind of declaration that it must be forgery because they don't like the content and they don't like what people are saying about it. Um, if, again, with the Nag Hammadi Library, it's much better if we actually have the, the, the original manuscripts in hand and it's, uh, it's harder to refute them. And then you're forced to deal with them. What do they say about the Carpocration version of Mark? Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Um, you know, so, so the Carpocration version, uh, Clement says that it says in there something about naked man with naked man. Um, and my assumption at first was that, okay, well, the Carpocrations did add something that was homoerotic. But let's keep that away from the, what is actually in the longer version of Mark that Clement does like. But then I realized naked man with naked man is not necessarily homosexual. Who knows what that means? Um, it, it could relate to, to baptismal ritual, which mm -hmm. usually involves being naked. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean something homosexual. And, you know, one of the things about, about ancient Gnosticism is that the Orthodox Church writers who didn't like Gnostic groups tended to accuse them of libertine practices. Accuse yeah. mm -hmm. them of... of, of uh, these strange sexual practices that they didn't like. But this is a, we found that this is a stock uh, insult that people used against their opponents in antiquity all the time. It's the same as the, the blood libel. If you don't like someone, you accuse them of, of eating babies, like I was mentioning earlier. Exactly. <laughs> but that doesn't mean every, every person in antiquity that you didn't like really did eat babies. It's just that that's what you say about people you don't like. So... We think, actually looking at the Nakamati Library materials, it seems that most Gnostics were ascetic rather than sexually libertine. And so when we read about the Carpocrations um, as being libertine, we now realize that's probably not true. And so when Clement of Alexandria talks about the Carpocrations, the, the temptation by scholars is to say, well, that must mean libertine sexual practices, homosexuality in this, this, state, this example. But we have to keep in mind that what the heresiologists, what the ancient church, Orthodox church writers said is probably not accurate. So let's keep that kind of interpretation away from the text so we can, uh, again, evaluate it appropriately. So the complications, whatever they may have added to the text, if they actually did, it may not have been what uh, about libertine sexual practices or homosexual sexual practices. Yeah. We don't know don't, what was really in it. Right. I, I don't think, however, that, that there's an... Uh, I think it could be internally consistent, though, for a Gnostic group to have a kind of libertine sexual attitude, I, because just knowing what I know about the Gnostics, I mean, obviously, the ancient Gnostics all kind of looked alike for the most part. You know, they, they had their specific differences, but, you know, they, they all kind of felt the same way about a lot of things. But having kind of a, a, a libertine attitude... Um, could very well suit a Gnostic worldview, in my opinion, because you have a, a kind of rebelling against the things of the material. Uh, what better way to do that than to indulge all of them and put yourself beyond them? I, I don't know. But the thing is, we don't have we don't really have good evidence that that yeah, isn't right. the case. It's only the people who don't like Gnostics who, who claim that they did so. Um, the texts themselves never come out and say that. The texts always are about don't have sex. Don't mix with the material. Um, keep away from women, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So there's a disjuncture there between what the heresiologists say and what the texts themselves by the Gnostics actually say. So we have to figure out what to do about that. <laughs> yeah, find all the documents. That's what we need. <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. if only we could. You know, what I am interested in, Dr. Burke, uh, if you have anything to say about this, I'm I recalling uh, Mark 14, 51-52, a, a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Do you think that there is a connection between uh, the passage from, from Secret Mark and, and this and this verse? Is there, is there some kind of a parallel here? Because we have a young man, linen garment, and fle flees naked, um, leaving the garment behind. Do you think that there's a connection there? I think I think it's this is one of this, the the good arguments for the fact that um, well I mentioned in the 
the video, Helmut Kester had this opinion that canonical mark is a shortened version of secret mark. Mm-hmm. And if we if we have the, the raising of the young man, which is very much like the Lazarus story, if that was originally part of Mark, then this young man fleeing at the arrest makes so much more sense. Um, and the, even the, 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 the other small part of Mark, uh, secret Mark, sorry, where Jesus comes um, and um, meets um, the sister of the young man in Salome, in canonical Mark, Jesus comes to this place and then immediately leaves. Nothing happens there. But in secret Mark, he comes, he sees these people, rejects them, and leaves. Something happens. So it seems to be that it, it makes Mark make more sense. Right. Um, and when it comes to that, that man fleeing at the, at the arrest, Matthew and Luke, who probably used Mark, they don't use that portion of Mark. Um, it seems that they didn't know what to do with it either. Um, but maybe their version of Mark did not have the secret Mark material. Or maybe ah. it didn't have the secret Mark material, nor the arrest, the, the young man at the arrest. And so they didn't include that either. We always assume that what Matthew and Luke were using is the Mark we have today. But it may mm-hmm. not, not have been. It may have been a different copy of it with different elements in it. Um, but certainly, like I said, it, it certainly makes the story of the young man at the arrest make more sense if secret mark was the original mark okay thank you that that was occurring to me it's bugging me and i wanted wanted to double check on that so i appreciate that can we switch gears a little bit i think we can uh you mentioned uh and i didn't know this but you worked on the lost gospel which is uh, a book that came out not too long ago a few months back um about uh, well, claiming to be a uh, a text proving that Jesus was married, and right. uh, you did the translation on that. Yes, um, uh, it was written by Simka Yakubovici, the naked archaeologist, and my colleague at York, Barry Wilson. And Barry approached me quite a few years ago now, about six years ago, and said, uh, "We have this text we want to use. Uh, it's in Syriac." Um, do you know anyone who can translate a Syriac text for us? As it happens, I can do that. Um, it was actually his way of saying, can you do this for us? <laughs> um, so I said, sure, I'll do it. Um, it gives me some practice with Syriac, which I could have used at the time because I was still kind of learning it. Um, and he said, we don't want to tell you what the theory is because we don't want it to influence the way you translate the text. But it also means that you don't have to agree with our theory. So that, it, that insulates you from it. And I thought, well, this sounds good. <laughs> so the theory is that this text is actually a, a, a text called The Story of Joseph and Aseneth. And it's the story of the patriarch Joseph of the Technicolor uh, uh, Dreamcoat fame and his marriage to an Egyptian woman named Aseneth. And it's their contention that this is just kind of a coded text. It's not really... Joseph, it's Jesus. It's not really Aseneth, it's Mary Magdalene. And they do bring up some um, um, a text from Syrian Christianity in which this text, uh, well, not sorry, this text, but the, the figure of Joseph is seen as an analog for Jesus. And Asneth is used, seen as an analog, not for Mary Magdalene, but for the church. But they still think that it is an analog for Mary. So I do think that the text is a Christian text rather than a Jewish text, and I do think it is saying something about Jesus, but I I don't agree with them that it's about Mary Magdalene. But anyway, so when this text came out, when the book came out, it caused a bit of a flurry of activity, uh, mostly because there are some people who really don't like Simca very much, um, so they want to attack, they quickly went on the attack. But again, I was insulated from it. I was just the guy who did the translation. Um, and so... Um, I was able to be a part of this phenomenon, but also step back and be able to say, well, it's not my theory. Um, and I'm not being ca- cowardice, uh, cowardly in doing that. I just don't agree with them. And I've read, I read the book before publication. I even pointed out some things here and there that they should probably uh, fix up. And I did say, I don't quite agree with you. Um, but it is interesting to be part of that kind of a publishing phenomenon. I got to be part of the documentary, which meant I got to get a flight to England, which was great. And I got <laughs> to be at the British Library and look at the manuscript, which was quite something. It's a sixth century manuscript. Okay. So very, very old. 
Um, so it's nice to be part of that whole process, whole uh, experience for sure. That is very interesting. I remember when that um, when when everybody was talking about that for five minutes, and uh, <laughs> it, yeah, it was it was certainly very interesting. And I I read an awful lot more negative about it than mm-hmm. I, I read people who were super excited about it. And yep. I, I wonder if that's <laughs> I don't know. I wonder if that's a symptom of people kind of being sick of it, uh, because I feel like if this had come out in more Da Vinci Code era, I think people would have been all over it. Yeah, I agree. I think the first uh, uh, broadcast I saw of it in the media, the 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 anchors on the news show looked tired of it too. They're like, "Oh, here we go again." <laughs> um, so I think I think you're absolutely right. I think I think people have seen this too many times. And um, there's a certain um, um, uh, I can't remember I can't think of the word I want to use, but a tiredness about the whole thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's going to be harder and harder to make those arguments, I think, mm-hmm. and be taken seriously. Um, and with the Gospel of Jesus' wife, the person who involved with that, Karen King, much more uh, widely respected as a scholar, but even she was. Uh, personally attacked for her involvement with this text, which was right. really quite unfortunate. Yeah, there were it, a lot of was, people who were saying, oh, it's a feminist agenda. Yeah. yeah. It was her, I remember, there was even a, people on, uh, there's one apparently Facebook group where people were saying that her and Elaine Pagels were fit only for food service jobs. Um, you know, and, and it was, we, we talked a bit about that at the time, Bishop mm-hmm. Canterbury and, and Father Tony, and one of the things that I brought up is I did feel that there was a tinge of sexism mm-hmm. um, in a lot of that. They, you know, that they were, as you mentioned, you know, that this was a feminist agenda or these, these silly women were grasping at straws. In fact, these are highly respected scholars um, who are, who have really were pioneers in, in an area, in an era, um, in this area of, of scholarship, and everybody just kind of went woof mm-hmm. right on them, and it was kind of upsetting. It was upsetting. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and the um, the symposium that that led to the publication of the the ancient gospel or modern forgery books on Secret Mark. We've done another um, symposium since then in mm-hmm. two thousand. 13, and we're going to do another one in 2015. And oh. one of the things we're doing at that is we're going to have a panel on the Gospel of Jesus' Wife, but not on about its content so much as, again, the, the, the reception of this text in scholarship. And most, uh, actually, scholarship is probably not the right word for it because most of the commentary has been online yeah. uh, by yeah. bloggers, by, on Facebook, though most, many of those people are actually scholars, but they're not public, they haven't published on the text in a formal way. So right. a lot of this stuff has been online. And so it's interesting to see how um, uh, the blogging um, platform has become part of scholarship. Mm-hmm. But the problem with it is that it means that uh, the discussion of texts like this gets done way too rapidly. Mm-hmm. And someone will come up with a theory. They'll say something like, well, isn't it weird that the text runs around a hole in the, in the manuscript? Uh, clearly, it's a forgery. And that gets out there. But then someone else comes along and says, well, that's quite common. If the paper was already had, already had a hole in it, of course, they would write around it. But that original theory is already out there. And it's getting passed around and passed around. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, so the problem is... is, is the speed of dissemination of the information and how it becomes part of the mythology around the text. And the same things happen with Secret Mark, whereas people used to, used to make arguments that, well, um, um, there are no photographs of the text. And that became part of the mythology of the, of the text. Well, actually, there were photographs. Mm-hmm. And they would come up with these other arguments that become part of the mythology. And we keep on having to correct them and say, no, that's not true. Um, but it keeps getting passed around by people who, who really want these texts to be forgeries. And uh, so it's hard to correct what's, what gets out there. And with the Internet, um, it gets out there much faster and, in, and, and lingers much longer, it seems. But does public, does public opinion influence the scholarship to a large degree, or is there kind of an insulation around that? Um, well, I think, again, um, when it comes to blogging, public opinion and scholarship are much closer to one another. Um, like people who, scholars who blog 
blog not just for the scholars but for a wider audience mm -hmm. so the boundary between those things is, is more porous than perhaps it used to be and, we, and we're seeing an awful lot of uh, um, biblical scholars getting involved in in documentaries like well I've done it as well but again that breaks down that scholarly public divide because you want to get your ideas across in a in a more simplistic way because you only have so much time to get them across um, so yeah so the point is, yeah, that this, the the division, the separation between uh, wider public knowledge and scholarly knowledge is getting um, um, more porous, mm. as I said. It, it's interesting that you bring that up. So I was just thinking back when when I was at university, the internet was in its infancy, really mm -hmm. wasn't being used, and but it seemed to me that you know scholars would publish in academic journals or would present at academic conferences. The journals and the conferences were being um, there was a, there was a gatekeeping mechanism there. Right. There's peer, there were peer review. You had to qualify to get in, and people who were responding were likewise your academic peers. And nowadays, as you pointed out, stuff gets put up online, and anybody can comment. Right. And it it, it be, and then you start with a comment thread, and if somebody tries to, um, you know, you have somebody who comes in with an agenda. Um, comes in and starts making all kinds of comments, you can end up devolving into something that isn't very scholarly at all um, and then becomes suddenly becomes very personal. And then mm -hmm. a so-called – a journalist or somebody trying to be a journalist mm -hmm. comes in, picks up on this – writes a news story about it, but this, you know, presenting what is essentially a conversation between scholars and non-scholars, but presenting it as, as the story. And I mm -hmm. think that, that we've touched on some really interesting themes in this show, showing that, as you said, it's become a lot more porous. Is that good for scholarship or isn't it? Or is it a bit of both? I think it is a bit of both. I sometimes get frustrated with, with uh, how slow... The, the normal scholarly mechanism is. Mm -hmm. um, you could write an article, you send it off to a journal, they take a year before they get it, they, they actually respond with the referee's comments and then you have to um, uh, make some changes and then it takes maybe another year for it to go through their publishing cycle. It's very slow. The blogging is, is instantaneous. But you then have to make decisions about what you think you should, what you think is appropriate for blogging or, or in magazine articles or newspaper articles, and what's appropriate for scholarship. Um, so you have to be very careful about, about making those decisions. With, with the, the, the Lost Gospel book by Simka and, and uh, Barry Wilson, um, scholars didn't like how they circumvented the referee process. Because, you know, they wrote this book, there was a gag order on everyone involved in it, it gets put out there, it makes a big splash. That's, but that's how you publish that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It's not quite scholarship. Um, it's for public consumption, but it draws on scholarly ideas. Um, so there has to be some kind of a, a proper balance involved in there. And I think we're still trying to work that kind of thing out. And I ran into a bit of a problem with, a, with an article I wanted to publish on a text, um, apocryphal text. But I put the, the English translation of that text on my website. For, so that people could see, see it and I talked about it a bit on my blog but then the journal I sent it to came along and said we won't publish the article because it, part of it's already been published online so that's another thing we're trying to work out is how much do we want to release online for public consumption and how much do we have to be careful to, to retain so that we can actually publish it in, in a scholarly um, um, medium uh, yeah. So these things are still trying, we're still trying to work out what the right way is to do this. But it's it's tough because it, it's great to get things instantaneously. It's great to use digital, uh, what we call digital humanities um, um, uh, I'm sorry, words often escape me. Um, I'm getting old. Um, digital format humanities fora um, to, to, uh, to, to work on the text that we do. Um, instead of using the tired old ways that we've been doing it in print format, uh, there's probably more better and more dynamic ways to do it, but we still have that old um, um, structure, the infrastructure there. It's, it's like the problem with music and, and, and you know, the, the, the industry still wants to, f to, to churn out compact discs, but the move is towards digital. And so we have to grapple with that in, in, uh, in scholarship as well. Now, 
back to that document um, in question. You mentioned that you don't think it's about Jesus and Mary Magdalene. Do you think no. it's about Jesus and the church? Is it probably? Um, certainly, the, the imagery being used for Joseph and this there's an angel in the text is certainly uh, what we call Christological. It's about Jesus, undeniably. Um, but what, how to interpret it precisely beyond that is is tricky. Um, what you have with these texts that feature characters from the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, you have this this kind of a uh, an earlier generation of scholars who really wanted to say that these were, these were Jewish texts. And anything that looked Christian in it, they would say that was interpolated by by Christians who circulated these texts. But now we're getting this, this new crop of scholars who say, well, Christians could write texts about Hebrew Bible characters without having anything about Jesus in them. And so we're starting to see texts like the Joseph and Asenath as probably written by Christians. And those elements in there that seemed puzzling before now make much more sense as being references by symbols, by analogies to Jesus and the church or some other things. So it's interesting to see this dynamic progress in, in scholarship about these, uh, the, what we call the Old Testament pseudepigrapha. And many of them seem to be Christian written Old Testament pseudepigrapha. Yeah, we had uh, Dr. Dylan Burns on a few weeks ago, and he said a very similar thing about Sethian texts. Uh, mm -hmm. that a, right. a lot of the Sethian texts have historically been considered um, if not uh, Jewish from start to finish, at least you know have their roots in a in a, an older Jewish text that was um, adapted by a Christian and a Gnostic uh, group. Um, but but he says very similar to what you're saying that there are some of these texts that probably were just written by the Christian Gnostics uh, using kind of the Jewish framework that they you know that they had from other sources. So right. yeah, it, it's interesting to see, kind of the cycles. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. Um, and I, we just talked about it. And I, have a, I teach a Gnosticism class at the moment. And we talked mm. about um, uh, a text called the Apocalypse of Adam recently, and it is usually generally considered a, a pre-Christian Sethian Jewish text. And any elements in there that seem to hint about Jesus must be something else, or must be a Christian interpolation. But one of the things I talked to my class about it is this wave in scholarship of uh, of the Old Testament pseudepigrapha of thinking, that, well, Christians could probably write about Old Testament figures and not put Jesus in there or or not make it quite so obvious. So yeah, we shouldn't discount the fact that it could be a Christian text. It's almost an appeal to authority, right? That you say, uh, you know, we're Christians, but we're using these older figures to mm -hmm. legitimize our, our, our ideas. Sure. Yeah. 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 Now, I have a question uh, that uh, I promised uh, Jonathan, our producer, that I would ask you, and I'm going to read it word for word so I don't okay. screw it up. Can you tell us a bit about what it's like to teach Gnosticism in a university setting to undergrads and what Pinocchio has to do with it? <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I've been teaching a Gnosticism course for about four years now, and uh, what you end up what, – what happens – so people would come into the class at the beginning – and they expect to see to hear all this uh, uh, stuff about, say, Mary Magdalene and about uh, different ways of looking at Jesus and his resurrection and other things. And within a few weeks, you start to teach them about the various cosmogenies in the text, which are these long drawn out stories about how the world was created, the cosmos was created. And after about three of these, they get fairly tedious because they've they, they repeat a lot of the same thing with some minor details added. So people start to drop the course. But the people who stick around, I think, think find that it's rewarding. Um, but um, when it comes to Pinocchio, when I took a Gnosticism class back when I was a graduate student um, with a, uh, a, a teacher named Michelle Desjardins, who was always come up with interest, coming up with interesting ways to look at the material, he asked at, at one point in the class, how do you make a story like the the elaborate cosmogony, the creation of the cosmos in the Apocryphon of John more intelligible? Because it's so detailed and so strange. And I went home and for some reason it occurred to me that the story of Pinocchio is very much like the typical Gnostic myth. Mm -hmm. So I, I show the scene in class every year uh, where Geppetto is uh, going to bed and he's looking at his puppet and he says, 
and he's talking to Figaro, his cat, and he says, wouldn't it be great if Pinocchio was a real boy? And then he falls asleep, and the blue fairy comes from up on high into the room and animates Pinocchio. Um, he's not quite real yet. He's not quite a real boy yet. Um, but Jiminy Cricket is there. He was appointed to be his conscience. He will teach him about right and wrong. And so through learning about right and wrong, he will become real. So I connect this to the, to the myth, to the Gnostic myth. So Geppetto is the demiurge, the, uh, the creator who's unaware of the true God up in the cosmos. He creates a human being, but he cannot animate it. We need the blue fairy, who's very much like Sophia. Uh, she comes down and, and with her light, she animates the, 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 the Pinocchio, the puppet, the human being. Jimmy Cricket there, who also has the same initials as Jesus Christ, who is going to be the one who will teach him how to be a fully real boy. He will give him the knowledge of good and evil. So that's very much like Jesus in the Gnostic system. He's a redeemer figure who will give humans the knowledge about their true origins, about, about how to um, escape this prison of the world and go up into, the, into the, um, the heavenly realm. And when I teach that in class, students really like it. And I, I try to make an analogy with what early Christians would have thought about when, when, when they heard these Gnostic texts. They hear about Jesus in them and, they, and it feels familiar, but it's different. So when these students watch the scene from Pinocchio, it's familiar to them, but I've given them this new interpretation that hopefully will make them uh, not be able to look at Pinocchio quite the same way again. Mm. Yeah, that's a great one. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that. All right. Well, we are about at time here. So time flies when you're having fun. Uh, <laughs> anybody want to give any parting thoughts before we go? Could you give your, your blog information again just one more time Dr. Oh, sure. those who are hearing, listening to this show? Uh, the name of the blog is Apocryphicity. Um, and certainly you could Google that and you would find the blog. Um, the full address is www.apocryphicity.ca. Um, and I am, I am on Twitter as well. Uh, my name there is TBAPOC, A-P-O-C. And I kind of tie these things in together. If I put something on the blog, I'll... I'll uh, put a tweet up about it, or I'll put some tweets about some other things. So I try to get information out there as widely as I can. Thank you very much. All Thank right. you all. It's a pleasure to be part of this. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Thank you so much. It was fascinating, just fascinating. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, and for everybody listening along at home, we'll see you next week. Take care. Good night, everyone. Good night. This has been a production of the Gnostic Wisdom Network. For more information about this and all of GWN's programming, please visit GnosticWisdom.net. The opinions expressed in this show do not necessarily reflect the opinions of GWN, the Apostolic Joannite Church, or any other organization. This has been released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License, and is brought to you by the generous support of our patrons. To support our programs and become a patron, please visit patreon.com slash gnostic. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash g-n-o-s-t-i-c.